grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. I am your hostess, host, Charlotte. I'll be with you for at least an hour talking to our wonderful guests that we have scheduled. How is everybody doing? You know, it was actually raining last night in Southern California. Rain. I got some really cool shots of Disneyland. Um, the, the, the castle lit up with um, lightning across the top of it. So I'm going to hopefully get those up. That was pretty cool. But anyway, I want to thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Again, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. But we are 35 strong up and down the state of California. So that means if you have any paranormal needs where you think you might have something paranormal going on in your house, we can get to you because we have people in almost every county. And if we don't, it's two or three counties over. We can get people over there. All right. But I want to welcome all of you. If you're watching from Facebook, please uh, hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitch, please hit that follow button. And the same thing goes if you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to subscribe because we have a lot of shows. In fact, tomorrow is a major, major day because tomorrow is our 200th show in this format. 200 shows. So I'm real excited about that. And on Friday, we're going to celebrate with medium Nancy Mats. We're going to have giveaways and talk story and talk and do what we always do, talk about the dead, right? And Nancy skills and... If we have time, Nancy will do some readings. So tomorrow's going to be, or Friday's going to be a fun day. I'm excited, but tomorrow's our 200 show. Anyway, my guest tonight is Stephen Schwartz. And I heard him on another show, and I was just so fascinated by what, what he does in that to use remote reading and to train people to do remote reading and find archaeological sites is absolutely fascinating. I am a history nut. I'm an archaeology nut. I grew up, my, my, my brother was an anthropologist, was an archaeology major. And so I grew up around that. And uh, I just love that stuff. So I'm really excited to have him on tonight. Okay. If you want to check out the radio show real fast and you're, you're not like live, I'm not live, you can go over there at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Or if you want to check out my paranormal group, that's CaliforniaHaunts.org. Okay. And while you're watching this, can you do me a favor? If you like what you see, can you share it? Can, can you get some more people to come over and watch us? That would be great, too. I would really appreciate it. All right. Well, without further ado, I'm going to bring our guest in. Good evening, sir. How do you do? Good. It's good to see you. It's a pleasure. Can you tell me about yourself? <laughs> good Lord. What would you like to know? Well, how did you get into what, you know, to, to like studying remote reading and all that? Because, I mean, that's not something everybody does. It's not remote reading. It's remote viewing. Okay, I'm sorry, remote viewing. I apologize. And um, I'm one of the people that created it. Okay. And I've been doing this for about 60 years. Wow. And um, what, what made you uh, invent it? I well, I um, many years ago in the 1960s, early 60s, 
Um, I had a series of very unusual experiences mm -hmm. and um, it culminated in my being introduced to the Edgar Casey material. And so I got interested in that. And in fact, as far as I know, I'm the only person who's ever read all of the Edgar Casey readings, except for Gladys, his uh, lifelong archivist. And I read all of the readings and I realized what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And in 1968, I began experimenting and uh, doing experiments. I then called it distant viewing. Uh, the term remote viewing was coined by a guy named Ingo Swan, who was one of the early remote viewers. It's a terrible term, by the way, because mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with remote and has nothing to do with viewing. Okay. But in any case, um, uh, that's what we call it. And I uh, began doing it. Uh, you, I started out uh, the very beginning. I made, I, I got some yellow rope and I laid out a grid in my backyard, the back garden. And I would bury little mason jars or uh, 35 millimeter film canisters containing something in one of the grids. And I would send out a map of the grid and ask whomever I was talking to to uh, describe, first of all, pick which grid of the, started out with 12 grids. And, and then when a statistician friend said, you know, it'd be much more impressive if there were more grids, mm -hmm. it became 144 grids. And um, so I'd say, can you locate this object that I've buried? And, um, pick the grid and they would mark it on their, their map. And, and uh, then I would say, can you please describe what I have buried there and draw me a picture of it and, and describe it for me. And I discovered that people could do this. And at, so I began I do more. I did more and more of these. Mm -hmm. I got interested in archeology span because I come out of an anthropology background and um, at that time, we're talking here, 1968, 69, uh, one of the big issues in archaeology was where to look, mm -hmm. because most archaeological sites were found serendipitously. You know, uh, uh, a farmer plowing his field would discover a tomb, or a road crew building a new road would discover a temple. Mm -hmm. So most things were found serendipitously. And I thought, well, this would be perfect because it allows pure triple blind conditions. Can somebody describe where something is and can locate it? And then can they describe what will be found there? And the other issue that I got interested in was, is this an electromagnetic phenomena? So um, in 1977, I conducted an experiment called Deep Quest, filmed it, got Leonard Nimoy, Dr. Spock to narrate it, and um, used it to locate a previously unknown wreck on the sea floor between Catalina Island and uh, Los Angeles. Because if they could do that, that meant they had to penetrate a thousand feet of seawater and I had been the special assistant to the chief of naval operations 
and the Navy got interested in electromagnetic transmission of a very particular type, what's called ELF, extreme low frequency, three to 300 hertz. And they wanted to use it to communicate with the ocean, the deep ocean missile submarines. So I knew exactly how, how deep ELF would penetrate seawater. And first of all, they did locate a previously unknown wreck and they described it in great detail, exactly what would be found there. And I then put them, uh, put two remote viewers at one at a time in the submarine and submerged, it was a research sub, mm -hmm. and asked them to describe where people were hiding in Northern California. And they were able to do that. And that meant that so that, that ELF or electromagnetic radiation mm -hmm. was not a possibility that this is not non-local consciousness non-local perception would be the correct term, um, it's not an electromagnetic phenomenon. It's involving something else. And I made a film out of that, which you can go to my personal website, stephanaschwartz.com, and you can see it. And then uh, about a year later, I was approached by two historians who wanted to know, could I locate Cleopatra's palace in Egypt and Mark Anthony's palace and the, light, and the Lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and could I locate the tomb of Alexander the Great? And I said, well, I don't know, but we'll try. And you can go to my website and see the film that I made about that. We did all those things and um, uh, located things. And then we also, in order to get the Egyptian government to cooperate with me and give me permission to do the things I wanted to do, I had to prove to them that it could be done. And so I, they challenged me to locate a buried building in a buried city about 40 kilometers outside of Alexandria, Egypt. And you can go and watch the film and watch that actually happen. And we were able to do that and locate exactly where it was down to 28 inches and describe things that were in this, uh, the, the buried building that were five, five sixteenths of an inch. That is fabulous. That is just totally um, change. I mean, it's, it's like a, it's, it's it's like a major change for archaeology. I mean, this is fantastic. Well, it was very successful, and it was the first of a whole series of things. But no, I wouldn't say that it was a huge change in archaeology because uh, a it's expensive, and b um, I think until people actually see the proof, they can hardly believe that it exists. So. Right. It's not like a lot of archaeologists subsequently picked up and did it. I did write a book called The Secret Vaults of Time, which described all the re research done prior to my getting involved. Mm -hmm. But ar archaeologists, individuals, have in fact been doing it for a couple hundred years. I just find it so interesting. And, you know, I just wonder, too, if, if like some archaeologists, because, you know, a lot of them are, are, are set in their ways, too. You know, the, the, the fun of it is, is the, like you say, the farmer in the field that, that finds something that, doesn't, that, they, that, that he didn't know was there. And then they have to go out and dig it and find out what it is. You know, and I'm just wondering if they're, they, they might be a little hesitant, too, because you guys right away can, hey, yeah, can you find this for me? 
know. Yes, we, we found one of Christopher Columbus's caravels in, uh, in Jamaica. We found the Brig Leander in the Bahamas. We found the Talking Idol of Ixtral in Mexico. So I've been doing this for a long time. That, uh, how many people have, have you been working with to do this? On an individual project? Yeah. Well, typically about five universities, anywhere from 35 to 100 people. And how do you train them to do this? Well, I don't, you know, everybody being a ghost hunter like I am, I mean, our belief is that everybody is born with these with psychic abilities. We just don't use them throughout our life, and some people lose them and some people don't. So how do you train people to do this? Well, in fact, um, it's spread through the population like any other ability. There are a small number of people at one end of the spectrum who are really, really good at it. And there's another small group at the other end of the spectrum who won't or either cannot or will not give themselves permission to do it. And most people fall somewhere in the middle. It's a kind of bell curve. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of different ways to do it. One of my objections to what's going on in this field is people claiming that they have the way to do it. Um, there is no a way to do it. Uh, I have a, uh, uh, online interactive course. You can go, uh, to glidewings.org and search on opening to the infinite. And I'll, I do a three week course to train you how to do it. Um, but, uh, and I also have written a book called opening to the infinite. You can get it off of Amazon, which trains you how to do it. Uh, there are a number of ways to do it. The key to the whole business is the ability to attain and sustain intentioned focused awareness. That's why they teach meditation in martial art dojos and Tibetan lamasaries and Hindu temples. And it's because meditation, meditators, first of all, do, do better routinely than non-meditators. But the key to the, and why meditation is important is that it teaches you how to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. And that's the key to the whole thing. So how you do that, there are a number of ways to do it. There are ways, I mean, I have particular ways I like, but it's not the only way. Uh, so it's the most important thing is that you learn how to do it and you have to learn how to stop analyzing and trying to rationally figure out what it is you're describing. Because the task for the remote viewer is not to do analysis, but simply to provide sense impressions. Mm -hmm. And can anybody do this? Or does it take somebody that, 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 that is special to do this? Well, as I said, there are people that are particularly good at it. I mean, the best archaeological remote viewer that as far as I know, it's ever been used in, as a, in an experiment, was a guy named George McMullen who had an eighth grade education and was a parts manager at a Chrysler dealership up in, up in Nanaimo, Canada on Vancouver Island. Hella Hammond was another one. She was an internationally known fine arts photographer. Mm -hmm. People who tend to be more creatively inclined tend to do better because they Creativity is also a function of locate of accessing non-local consciousness, and so people who 
tend to be highly creative tend to do better than people who are highly analytical because they always try to figure out what it is. Um, but, you know, all kinds of people that you wouldn't think would be able to do it turn out to be really good at it. Michael Crichton, who was a famous writer-director. Say, yeah. And, um, you know, Andromeda Strain. And, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think what the other ones were. But in any case, uh, Michael was a really good remote viewer. I just met him socially, and, and he wanted to try, and turned out he was really good at it. Other people think they're really good at it, and th that doesn't turn out to be the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when somebody um, asks you to look for, like, like for, uh, for an archaeological site, what do you guys have to do? What do you, what, what you guys do to prepare, and how do you do it? Well, first of all, you have to get the search area. So you say, well, where do you think this thing is located in a general area? I mean, it can be thousands of miles. Sure. Um, for instance, in the Maria location of the buried building in the desert in Egypt, we started out with, uh, I think it was 1,700 square kilometers. Anyway, you need to get a map of that area or a satellite image will work. And you send that out individually to a group of people. Um, I created something called the Mobius protocol, which is a way of using multiple remote viewers. And I mean, the thing you have to get clear about is that it's not a search technique. It's a find technique. There's no searching. You just go to the place that they tell you it's either there or it's not. Mm -hmm. So in any case, you send out this, if it's a big map, and you ask them to make a circle where they, whatever it is you're looking for is, is located. And you get these maps all back and you put them on a light table or you put them in a, you know, if you're using a computer, you put them up on a computer screen and, and you, you lay over each of the maps. And what happens is a consensus areas emerge. That is, they may pick a number of places, but there'll be one or two places where a number of people will pick the same place. And those are called consensus zones. And that's what you focus on. And then, because depending on the scale that you're starting with, you may have to get another map and you do the whole thing again. Only this map, you only get a map that covers the two consensus zones. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then you break that down and do the same thing. Um, and maybe you have to do it a third time. Depends. You know, if you start with the United States and you're trying, you know, that's thousands of miles. Yeah. And you want to locate a particular, I don't know, a particular tomb. Uh, you might have to do that four or five times in order to get it down to a searchable area. And when you finally get it down to a searchable area, which is a relatively small, then you take a couple of people out into the field with you and and you give them a stake if it's in the uh, on land, mm -hmm. or you give them a, a, a buoy if if it's in a boat underwater, and you ask you tell them you're now on the edge of the consensus zone. Would you please walk into the consensus zone, or take the boat into the consensus zone? And when you get over the thing that you've previously described, would you put a stake in the ground, or would you uh, put the buoy over the 
over the boat. And while you're, that's the location part. And then in addition to that, you get all of these descriptions that they give you and you do a concept by concept breakdown. That is, if I said uh, the woman with the black hat with the red writing, or let's say the woman with the blue hat with the red writing, that's a single sentence, woman, blue, hat, red, writing, that's five concepts. Mm -hmm. But let's say uh, we would call that actually partially collect, correct, because the hat is black. So you do that kind of analysis. It's exactly the same thing that intelligence communities do to get intelligence on something. They look at electronic intelligence. They have human intelligence or the same thing that investigative reporters do when they're doing a story. And out of that, you break down, that down. And again, you're looking for consensus. And uh, those consensus become the hypothesis for the dig along with the location. So before you ever do any field work, you know I'm looking for a particular place. This is how it's shaped. This is how deep underground it is. This is what it contains. These are the objects that I will find within the site. Mm -hmm. And then you go into the field. And usually I let uh, a team of archaeologists, because they're trained to do that kind of very meticulous digging, to do the actual excavation. As I said, these, these projects typically involve anywhere from three to five universities. And um, we do the excavation and we see what happens. How long does it take, you know, when, when they start, when, when you sit them down to start making the, 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 their initial views on this stuff? How long, how long does it take for them to jot their stuff down? Oh, a typical remote viewing session is about somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes. Okay. Okay. It's fascinating for me because, I, I mean, I, I, I have psychics on my team that do that, that, do that stuff, you know, on, on locate, like for haunted locations. Where I have one in particular that I could send just a, just a picture of a front of a house, and then she will look inside the house, and then she'll walk around, you know, and she'll tell me what kind of wallpapers in there, what kind of you know furniture is in the house and stuff. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's why I was so excited to talk to you because this is completely different from what I ever thought it would be. You know, looking for archaeological things. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's you know, it's as I said, it's the same thing. It's that the police use that intelligence communities use. Uh, the, the question is, you you need to understand that you're dealing with non-local consciousness. That's mm -hmm. this information is not coming from space-time in that way, and and um, and you have to understand how to do the analysis and develop the hypotheses that guide whatever it is you're doing. Now, have you done uh, any viewing yourself? Of course. And did you have it? Did you have any kind of psychic abilities or anything like that growing up? I had a series of experiences. I saw a near-death experience when I was twelve years old. Uh, I met my great, 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 great grandfather uh, when I was uh, probably about twenty. Um, so I had a series of experiences that uh, got me interested in consciousness. Is it hard to teach? 
No. Is it because as as well? Is it because they're like self-taught? Because I, you know, because like you say, you you have this thing up on your website that people can go to to try it out, you know, just to see if they can do this. Is it just? No, I said that I have a online workshop. Okay. In fact, the next one starts in July. Anybody that's interested, you go to glidewing.org, okay. search on Opening to the Infinite. You can sign up for it. Um, but it's not, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's no more. It, the key is changing your conscious, what your intention is, and being able to uh, reduce your obsession with uh, analysis to simply allow the imagery to come in without trying to figure out what it is or whether you're right or any of that kind of stuff. Now, for people that don't understand this stuff, when you say imagery, what do you mean by imagery? Well, if I ask you, can you remember the first time that you went out to dinner with somebody you were in love with? Could you answer that question? Sure. Well, can you imagine what that room looked like? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to think back and really think about yeah. it. Do you, do you remember what you ate? Yes, definitely. Do you remember what you were wearing? Yes. Do you remember what they were wearing? Yes. That's it. Okay. It's like a daydream or a memory that returns. That's absolutely fascinating, you know. And how many, you know, how many cases have have, have you guys done for like even the military and stuff? I would not do military uh, remote viewing because I wouldn't do classified research. I felt that anything that we learned about consciousness should be made publicly available. And I turned down a million six hundred thousand a year uh, for five years guaranteed because I, I wouldn't do classified research. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, let's talk about Cle Cleopatra's tomb. How did that come about? And, and how, you know, what was the preparation stuff for that? Well, it's the same thing as I told you. You and you can. I wrote a book called The Alexandria Project, which spells it all out. Uh, I send out the map of Alexandria, Egypt. We knew that Cleopatra's Palace was somewhere in Alex in Alexandria, right. which is a city on the Mediterranean, and was at the time uh, she was the queen of Egypt, and it was the. A city where we knew her palace existed, but where exactly nobody knew. And to everybody's surprise, including mine, uh, it was described as being under the water. Uh, it turns out that the uh, African littoral has sunk and the Mediterranean Sea has risen. And this was about, oh, 15, 20 feet underwater. And they located it for us and described it in great detail, just as I was describing to you. Right. And when we went and, and when we did scuba diving and when we went diving, it was just where they said it was and looked just like they said it would. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. That, that, that can even be done. What do you like best about teaching people this stuff? Well, the thing that I think is really important is that people recognize that they're more than animated meat. That consciousness 
the materialist worldview is that consciousness arises from the physiology of the body mm -hmm. and that dead meat, no consciousness. But in fact, the research, and it's, there's an enormous amount of it, um, and it's been going on for decades, makes it very clear that there is continuity of consciousness. That is, you existed before you incarnated, and, or at least your eternal self existed, what religion calls the soul, mm -hmm. and that, you're, uh, that, that manifested a personality that incarnated, and that physical death is not the end, that you, that, that aspect of consciousness returns to the eternal self and continues, and periodically, episodically, um, for reasons that we are beginning to understand, you manifest another personality and another incarnation. And you believe in that stuff, right? I have nothing to do with belief. It's entirely about evidence. Okay. I am a data person. That's the important That's thing to remember science. about me. I, I am not interested in your speculations, in your theories, in your fantasies, in your whatever. Right. I care about objectively verifiable data. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And you said that you had a um, near-death experience? No, I witnessed a near-death experience. Okay. Can you tell me about that? Oh, sure. When I was 12 years old, uh, my father was an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. And in those days, I don't think they do this kind of thing anymore, but in those days, on Saturday when you were home from school, uh, if you wanted to, and it was kind of like a recruitment program, I think, that the doctors did for their, their children, you could scrub up and sit behind your father in the operating room as long as you didn't say anything or touch anything. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one day when I was, I, I guess, maybe 12 and a half at that point, uh, on a Saturday morning, I scrubbed up with my dad and went into the operating room. And um, he had already gone in. I was late getting in there. And when I got in, I, I, um, I couldn't really see the patient because they, this, this person was covered with the sheets that they cover you with, the dressings. And so I couldn't see who it was. And they were just beginning. My father was beginning the anesthesia. And, and they started, and then I something went wrong. I didn't know what it was. I'm just a little boy sitting there. And I, um, they, but they went into this kind of controlled panic. Mm -hmm. It was very controlled, but it was clear that it was an emergency. And they pulled off these, um, they pulled off the dressings, and I could see that it was a girl, a, a teenager, about, I don't know, 15 years old. And I could see her breasts. And of course, 12 year old boys are obsessed with breasts. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, I could see she was a young girl. And I'm, I'm sort of sitting at her head, looking down her body. And they did whatever it was they were doing. And, and finally, everything seemed to calm down. But they didn't do the surgery. They, uh, uh, they, the other doctors, they had a little conversation. And then they wheeled her into the recovery room without doing the surgery. 
And um, I didn't go. I, I wasn't allowed to go. And so I went back into the locker room where the doctors go and, and you know, cleaned up and put on regular clothes. And my dad came out. He had this very odd look on his face. And we got in the car uh, because on Saturdays, um, the doctors all went to uh, a delicatessen and there was a table in the back reserved for them, the doctor's table. And this is, this is about 1954, I would say, 55. And we got there to where all the doctors were. And um, my, one of the, the doctors said to my dad, Abe, you know, how's she doing? <coughs> and my father said, well, she's all right. She's going to be okay. But he said, she, she told me this very strange story. She said, you all wouldn't listen to me. She said, I was out of my body up above you and I was calling to you and you wouldn't listen. And so finally I went out into the, into the hallway, out of the operating room. And she said there was a nurse there and she described the nurses. This is my father speaking. And mm -hmm. she described the hairdo of the nurse because she thought it was really cute. Cute. And she said, and then this young doctor came by, had a blue and white striped shirt, and his tie was sort of pulled down, wasn't fully, fully pulled up. In those days, everybody wore coat and tie. Mm -hmm. And he said he was clearly flirting with this girl, the nurse. And uh, then he went, he went off someplace, and, and she said, and suddenly I woke up, and I was back in my body, and, and you were wheeling me into the into the uh, infirm into the recovery room. Now this is uh, this is about as I say about 1954-53, and all of these doctors were veterans of the of the Second World War. And so uh, around the table, they all began to share these stories of what today we would call near death experiences. Mm -hmm. That term didn't exist then. But they shared these stories that they had all experienced during the course of the war with the soldiers that they'd treated. And as we were driving home after the lunch, I said to my father, what happened? And he said, well, you know, medicine is as much an art as a science. And there's just a lot of things we don't know. And one of them is, do we survive after death? And I, I never forgot that. And years later, I met a guy named George Ritchie, who was a doctor in Charlottesville, Virginia. I went to University of Virginia. And he had had a near-death experience. He wrote a book about it. And I got to know him and talked with him. And then um, a little later, a, year, a few years later, uh, I met Ray Moody, who had written a book also about it. And um, a number, actually a couple of books and and. I learned from him about a great deal about it. And, and then I became friendly with uh, Ian Stevenson, who was at the University of Virginia and was doing reincarnation research. And I, I learned about his work. A guy named Bruce Grayson, who was doing near-death stuff and written a book. Ken Ring, who wrote a book. And so I got to know all the people that we're doing this research and this part of the research community I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, just 
kept following the research and doing my own research. And what has your research told you? What does my research tell me? Yes. Well, in that regard, what I told you, mm-hmm. that there is an aspect of consciousness which is outside of space-time, that what the religions call the soul is this eternal self, and that it episodically manifests a personality then incarnates. Um, you know, when you begin to think about consciousness as primary and fundamental, you know, in 1931, Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics, was asked by the, a reporter from the Observer newspaper what he, had, what he had learned. Now, Planck at that time and Einstein were the two most famous scientists in the world. Mm-hmm. And this reporter said, you know, you're the father of quantum mechanics. What have you learned? I don't know what they thought he was going to say, something about molecules, I suspect, and atoms. And what he said was, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Consciousness, space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. It is the fundamental. And I would say I completely agree with that. Okay. I have a question in the chat room. Let me get up here a little bit. Okay. Have you ever had someone come to you uh, to do remote viewing that made you question their intentions for some reason, such as something illegal, frightening, morally wrong, or anything like that? And if so, can you elaborate? Have I ever had anybody come to me to remote view? Who uh, For somebody uh, that, where, where, you, where you question their intentions. That I question their intentions? Yeah. No. Have you encountered, here's another question that's kind of out there, but uh, have you encountered aliens from other planets or any ocean or underground? Um, what are some experience that you have with, with the other side, if you have had experiences? Well, I my personal belief is that um, there are almost certainly aliens. I've also known most of the UFO researchers going back to, to uh, uh, what's his name, Donald Kehoe. That's back in the also back in the fifties, mm-hmm. and I all the MUFON people and all that sort of thing. So I I know all the researchers. I know all the research. You know, I'm particularly been following this stuff that's coming out now. I am sure that the, I don't believe I don't think for a moment that we are the only sentient conscious civilizations in the universe. There are billions of planets. I don't think we're the only ones. I think they are behaving like cultural anthropologists behave when they study primitive tribes. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect that there comes a point in the development of a technologically based civilization where they either awaken to the idea that consciousness is causal and fundamental mm-hmm. or they, they don't and they destroy themselves. They have a nuclear war whatever, because they don't recognize the that we live in a matrix of life. We're not that Abrahamic idea of having um, domain over the planet, and, you know, like it was a rich bank account that was left to us by an uncle. Mm-hmm. And they beha- that's how they behave. They behave exactly like cultural anthropologists. They observe us at a distance. Mm-hmm. 
they don't intrude too much because they don't want to disrupt things. They want to actually see what we're doing. There is, uh, I think, some slight evidence that, that um, well, years ago I had dinner with a man named Arthur Kessler, who was once, I, mean, I guess, I don't know how many people know him now, but was then a very famous writer. Darkness at Noon, and I mean, anyway, a, a big deal writer. And he was convinced that about 40,000 years ago that they had intruded into the lives of a, a small number of people and had genetically manipulated them and that that is what caused the rise of Homo sapiens from Homo, homo Neanderthal or Homo uh, 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 Denisovian. Mm -hmm. And then years later, I met a guy named John Mack, who was one of the big abductee researchers. And I, I asked him, you know, it strikes me that all of these accounts of people being probed in their groin and their genitals right. might be an, an example of genetic manipulation. And, and I thought about that and I thought, I, I asked him, I said, you know, you wouldn't have to do that many people. I mean, a couple thousand would be enough. You know, if you think about it, you did a thousand people and every one of them had two children and those two children had two children and so forth. You know, it was gene lining. If you, if it changed, the, it was like CRISPR, the new CRISPR technology, you know, and it carried on from generations. Well, then pretty soon you'd, you'd have, you know, you'd have a thousand, then you'd have 10,000, a hundred thousand, a million you could change the whole course of a species with just manipulating a, a, a thousand people. And John said to me, well, that he hadn't thought about that, but he said, you know, that is actually very interesting because this, we accumulate all of these abductee stories. And, and he said, it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen regularly. And they all tell the same kind of story. And so you could be right. Absolutely. Um, another question, you know, uh, from the chat room is that they're curious about your beliefs. Do you, do you think there's, that, that there's such thing as time travel? You mean physical time travel where you're physically moving from one space uh, to, from yes. one time to yes. another? Yes. I, I, we don't have the capability to do that. Mm -hmm. it, will we ever have the capability to do that? I'm not sure. I, I am absolutely convinced, I mean, on the basis of the evidence that you can go back into the past. Right. It's, it's no harder to describe uh, a, a Cleopatra's palace lost for 2,000 years than it is to describe a teacup hidden in a closet across the street. Mm -hmm. So I have no question that you can go in time. I'm now doing a big study to have people go forward in time to see what they say the future looks like, and um, which is turning out to be quite interesting. I, I did another version of it from 1978 to 1991, and the remote viewers predicted, I, I left government in 1976, mm -hmm. and I was very concerned we were going to have a nuclear war. Most people who were at my level and above in the geopolitical community mm -hmm. uh, 
we all thought there was likely to have a nuclear war, not necessarily intentionally, but by accident. And in fact, were it not for one Soviet colonel who wouldn't push the button when he was told to, we would have had a third world war. Mm -hmm. So we were, I was very concerned we were going to have nuclear war. And I asked the remote viewers, uh, do we have a nuclear war? And they said, no. And I said, well, then, you know, it, the world must be much safer. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, no, the world is much more dangerous. And I said, why? And they said, terrorism. Now, in 1978-79, when I started this, the only terrorism anybody worried about was the, the struggle between the Protestant and the Catholic Irish in Ireland. So that was, you know, very unusual. Terrorism? They said, oh, yeah, it's a huge problem. And, um, and then I said, well, what about the Soviet Union? Since you say there's no nuclear war, what, what are they like? And they said, oh, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, I just... In those days, 78, 79, 80, we thought, you know, there were two great superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States. But of course, in 1991, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. So then I would ask questions like, well, tell me about health care. And they would say, oh, well, there's going to be a, a, a number of pandemics. I said, pandemics? You know, I'm thinking 1918 Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, yes, it's really... The first one will be a blood disease that crosses over from primates to humans in Africa and spreads around the world and kills millions of people. And I took this to a friend of mine who was then the deputy director of National Institutes of Health. And I said to him, do you know anything about a blood disease that crossed over from primates to humans in Africa that could kill millions of people? And his answer was, I don't know what you're smoking, Stefan. Don't continue. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, wow. you know nonsense. Can't, can't. But of course, then we had AIDS that killed 35 million people and was a blood disease that right. crossed over from primates to humans in Africa and spread all over the world. Then we had SARS. Then we had H5N1. And now we have COVID. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have more. And if you had talked to anybody in the, at that time that I was asking people those questions, mm -hmm. they would have said, no, what are you, pandemic? What are you talking about? Um, anyway, I asked them all, uh, they, I would say to them questions. I, had, I hadn't heard about climate change. I didn't know anything about climate change until 1991. Uh, but in the 70s and 80s, as I would interview people, I interviewed 4,000 people eventually all over the world. Um, I, like in Los Angeles, which is where my lab was at that time. I would say, well, okay, are you in Los Angeles? They would say yes. And, and I would say, well, what's it like? And they would say, well, it's quite different. I'd say, really? Why is it quite different? Well, you know, Santa Monica, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, they're all underwater. I thought, underwater? Why are they underwater? Well, I don't know. You know, it's, it's just they're underwater. And I went to a, a climatologist friend 
and said, can you tell me why it, people would be describing Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach as being underwater? Or other people in Norfolk and Virginia Beach saying it was underwater parts of it? Or um, in Japan, that the coastal areas were underwater? And I said, can you, you know, why would that be, why would that happen? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, that's nuts. You just, that, that all that remote viewing stuff, that's just crap. That, that, nonsense. But of course, now we climate change and we see all the predictions are. Santa Monica is going to go partly underwater. Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach, parts of Virginia Beach, parts of Norfolk, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, most of Florida. That's all going underwater, exactly as the remote viewers described. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Um, is there a way to make learning easy for someone like myself or my person that's questioning? Uh, you know, to, to change a life in a, in a way where I can find uh, more peace and happiness? Yes. I would say to you, develop the daily practice of meditation. Okay. There are many ways to meditate. It's, it's less important which way than the way. That there's not the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that lots of them claim that there's the way, but the research doesn't say that. And again, as I said, I'm a data person. I care about data. I I developed a technique of meditation called Meditation for Modern Minds. You can go to my personal website, stephanaschwartz.com, and download on your phone or your computer a a, 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 a digital program called uh, Meditation for Modern Minds that is specifically designed to do exactly what your questioner is asking. And I would recommend that. That is probably the most important thing that uh, you could do for yourself. I have a question. Is the technique to prevent or or to predict the future the same as the technique to find stuff to to do location work? You mean is the remote viewing the same? Yeah, it's exactly the same. Okay, okay. All right. Cool, cool, cool. What do you have to say to people that really want to get into this? Well, I mean, first of all, I would say to them, I would work on yourself. And I would say to them, um, the next thing I would tell you is, if you want to change things, uh, one of the things that I feel very strongly about, I've written a book called The Eight Laws of Change, which explains this at length, but I did 25 years worth of research about how social transformation happens Mm -hmm. and how individuals and small groups can do that. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there are eight principles, eight laws, I call them. I didn't invent them. It's just that's what the data tells me. But one of the things you can do is that every day you make dozens and hundreds of choices. The toothpaste you buy, the toilet paper you buy, the cat food you buy, whatever. Every one of those is a vote. And I urge people that you commit yourself that every choice you make every day to the best of your ability, Mm 
always be of the options available on that choice, the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. And I urge people to tell 10 other people that they're close to, that they have made this commitment, and invite them to join them, and to get their, tell their friends to also get 10 of their friends to do it. If you do that, to give you an example, if the people that are listening to this radio program or watching it would make the commitment to do that, these are called quotidian choices, these little bitty, you know, mundane choices you don't even think about. You just, you do it, you buy the toothpaste because that's your mother's toothpaste or you buy the cat food because that was your girlfriend's cat food or, you know, whatever. Instead of being unconscious, you do this consciously and you only buy from companies that support and foster well-being. If the people that are listening to this program would do this and make the commitment that from this moment on, every choice they make of the options available to them, and not all options are good. It's not, the good is not the enemy of the, the perfect is not the enemy of the good that you simply pick the best one that you have available to you at the moment that you have that choice option and that you always choose the one that is the most compassionate and life affirming and fostering of well-being as I described. Mm -hmm. If that would happen, the people that are listening to this radio program could change the outcome of the election in November. And instead of being based on politics, it would be based on fostering well-being. And that's the most important thing we have to learn. We live in a matrix of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And every choice we make is either supporting and fostering well-being in that matrix, or it is not. And if your only social priority is profit or power, then you are destroying the matrix. If you want to foster the well-being of the matrix, then you make different choices. And that's the most important thing I can tell you in this entire program. Great. Fantastic. One more thing, sir. Can you tell me, um, in, in your opinion, out of all the re remote viewing that you've been involved with, which one was the most um, interesting? <laughs> well, they're all interesting. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they're all fascinating. Um, and I like the experience of the expeditions. You know, I like diving and I like going to strange places and and uh, not st strange to me, uh, unknown to me. Uh, I'm not sure. That'd be very hard to pick. I mean, the Alexandria Project was extraordinary. Went on for almost two years. Christopher Columbus's caravel was very exciting. The Seaview Project, which found the Brig Leander, was certainly very exciting. All of these papers, by the way, you can go to academia.edu mm -hmm. and all my papers I publish in academic peer-reviewed literature and they're all there. They're all supported. Everything's documented. You know, there's no, there's, there's nothing wiggly or, you know, unclear or there are no claims that aren't documented. So, or you watch the movies, as I said, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I just my life has been very interesting. Let me put it that way. It has. I I, I loved um, re 
you know, reading your profile and stuff because you have done so much in your life. Well, you know, <laughs> otherwise, I guess I don't know. I, I like to do the things that interest me. It's just that you had a very full life, a very uh -huh. full life. That I would agree. Absolutely. So um, when you choose people to be like viewers for, say, you know, a project that you need, how do you do that? Do you, do you have people that you can call right away or do you want new people in? You know, like fresh. No, I ask if people come to me and who say I'd like to be a remote viewer, then I, I do some tests with them. Mm hmm get them to do some remote viewings and see how they do. And if they are good at it, then I, I might include them in a bigger study. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to thank you for coming on tonight. I so appreciate it. My pleasure. I really, really appreciate it. I'd love to get you on some other time and talk about some of the other stuff you do. Okay. You're quite the adventurer. Yes. <laughs> but uh, thank I you. I like so adventures. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay. Well, you take care. All right. You have a good evening. Stay safe and well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, guys. That was cool, man. That was just fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Tomorrow, we're shifting gears a little bit. Dr. Linda Salvin is going to be with us to talk about NDEs. And, uh, well, a little bit about what you, this gentleman was talking about. And she's going to talk about positive vibes and stuff and, and how that can affect your life. So we're going to be talking with her. And remember, tomorrow night's our 200th show. So it's kind of like we're going to have a little mini celebration before we do Friday's show. But uh, this was a ter tremendous show. And uh, I can't thank this gentleman enough for coming on. And uh, I learned so much, and I hope you did too. Okay, so that being said, uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And please be sure, if you're watching from YouTube, to subscribe. And if you're watching from Facebook, please uh, follow. And if you're watching from Twitch, please follow. And Twitter and everywhere else, please follow. And uh, I, I just really appreciate you guys following me all this time. A lot of you have stuck with me since the beginning. And uh, we're going to have 200 more shows after all this, right? We're going to do 200 more shows. But... Uh, I love having guests on like this. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm an archaeology buff, and I just find this stuff fascinating. And when I can fit something like that in with what we do as paranormal investigators, with remote viewing, it's even better. Okay, so visit CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And if you're interested in my paranormal uh, services, actually the team services, CaliforniaHaunts.org. All right. Now, you see that little thing flashing at the bottom of the screen? Oh, before I do that, I want to thank you guys in the chat room. I have to do this. And I want to thank the people that were in the chat room. Hang on a second. Let me get in here. I want to thank Tina Chris. Okay, you got a thumbs up, Tina Chris. I want to thank Tina Chris. I want to thank, okay, there we go, Jen Martin, Athena. I want to thank Debbie. I want to thank Jerry. I want to thank Pamela for all coming in to the chat room today to listen to the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, anyway, uh, I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Oh, yes, and that ticker thing fall at the bottom. Now, now we're back to that. The ticker thing at the bottom, it's because California Haunts is uh, technically a nonprofit, so everything that happens to California Haunts, I'm the owner, comes out of my pocket, whether it's Internet, you know, lighting, mics, computers, paranormal equipment, anything like that comes out of my pocket. 
So if you could help me out a little bit, keep the show on the air, that would be great. You know, because uh, I didn't think I was going to last this long. <laughs> and we're still here. And a lot of that is because you guys have been so great helping me, you know, helping me out and keeping me in equipment, headphones or whatever. So I really appreciate it. So if you uh, could help me out, I'd really appreciate it. And that's at uh, paypal.me at California Haunts. Or Venmo, if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, California Haunts is all you have to type in. I want to thank you all for coming tonight. And I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Let me get over my little page so I can push my buttons. And here's his information. Have a good night. Websites, SchwartzReport.net, SamuelInstitute.org, and StephenSchwartz.com. Book, The Awakening. Opening to the Infinite. The Alexandria Project. I think I want to read that one. Eight Laws of Change. How to be an agent of personal and social transformation. The Secret Vaults of Time. And, of course, you can get those at Amazon.com. All right, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night.